welcome to the Theology Pugcast, and we are in a new year, the year 2023, and we're glad that you're with us in this year, and uh, today we've got a show that uh, we're looking forward to presenting to you, and it's Glenn's Day, but before we get to Glenn and the topic of the day, uh, allow me to introduce myself. I'm C.R. Wiley. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. It's Westminster Presbyterian Church. It meets for worship in Vancouver, right across the Columbia River from Portland, Oregon. (laughs) And our offices are in Battleground, Washington, and I've written some books. But anyway, that's enough about me. How about you, Tom? Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, and philosophy. One of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. All right. Glenn, introduce yourself and tell us what we're talking about today. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor from Central Connecticut State University, uh, specializing in uh, Renaissance and Reformation Europe. Uh, these days, my day job is I work for as a ministry associate for Reflections Ministries, and uh, I also write for Breakpoint. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview there. Okay, so um, I thought that today I'd like to take a look at uh, the idea of myth and mythology. And some of this is coming out of a book I'm reading at the moment on Tolkien um, called Defending Middle-Earth. Limited recommendation on that, but that's a different matter. (laughs) But uh, it it, uh, reminded me of Tolkien's comment that what he was trying to do with Middle-Earth was to create a mythology for England, uh, that in fact he believed England would have a full and robust mythology were it not for the Norman conquest that sort of cut everything off. Um, so Middle-earth was uh, started off at least as an attempt by him to create a mythology for England. And we may return to that later. Uh, given the direction our conversations tend to go, we may not. Um, but in any event, Uh, I thought it would be a good idea to just start off talking about what myth is and different ideas about myth, uh, why mythology is important, why, how it functions, all of those sorts of things. And I think probably the place I would want to start is with the word myth itself and the way people use the word. Um, A lot of times when we talk about something being a myth, what we mean is this is something that a lot of people believe, but that's total nonsense. It's just wrong. It's false. Mm-hmm. And I think this betrays a lot of uh, our general attitude toward mythology. And I would argue a misunderstanding of mythology uh, itself. I, I, th- this idea of a myth as something that is widely believed but false is really, I suspect, a product of uh, Enlightenment rationalism. Yeah. Uh, that, um, you know, and particularly as you're moving out of the Enlightenment period into the 19th century with the rise of scientism, uh, that the only things that are true are things that are empirically verifiable or logically necessary based on empirical observation. That idea means that all of these stories in the past, as well as a lot of popular beliefs in the present, are at best curiosities, but mostly they're lies. Right, because they're they're not all about matter and energy. And now in the 19th century, you see a big rise, actually even in the 18th to some extent, but in the 19th century, you're going to see a big rise in studies of folklore and mythology and so on. And some of that 
comes about because of romanticism as sort of a reaction against uh, uh, Enlightenment rationalism. But even there, one of the things that you're going to see is a very common idea is what's called the rational theory of mythology. That is to say that myths are simply there to explain natural phenomena. You know, why do we have lightning and thunder? Well, it's Zeus throwing lightning bolts or it's Thor hitting giants with his hammer. Okay. <laughs> right. um, now, my, my brother-in-law was on a trip to Ireland at one point, and they have all of these uh, stone tables in Ireland. Um, probably most of them are connected to tombs, we know now. But in, in Ireland, the idea was that uh, it goes back to the stories of Finn McCool. Um, the, a giant in in Irish uh, folklore and mythology. Uh, somebody ran off with Finn's wife at one point, and he cursed them and said they could not sleep anymore on Irish soil. So they had to build these tables so that they could get a good night's rest. <laughs> um, you know, now that that's phasing from uh, you know, is that mythology? Is that folklore? What is it? There's there's a distinction there, but it's really kind of difficult to make in many cases. Uh, but it's a similar sort of thing. It's an explanation of geographic features. You know, it could be a natural phenomenon. It could be like lightning. It could be, where did we get fire? Why do we have fire and the animals don't? It could be, and, and uh, why, why do the seasons change? Right. You know, all of these kinds of things. That, that now, there is a degree of truth there, but I think that that really misses the point of mythology in some pretty substantial ways. Yeah, so, I, I think one of the things that can be disheartening to maybe an imaginative sort of person who finds himself in some kind of corners of the evangelical world is this is the sort of thing that a lot of folks sort of take for granted or accept. Uh, you know, people, uh, when the word myth is used in, in some church settings, it means precisely what you just described, Glenn. It's, it's a lie. Or it's some crude way of explaining. I remember years ago I was reading something by, um, oh, uh, Isaac Asimov. Yeah, remember he did like a uh, a commentary on the on the Bible. It was like this yeah. really horrible uh, sort of almost caricature of of what a commentary uh, canon should be. But his he was completely unreflective. He was he had more or less. Uh, this outlook you've just described and his, his approach to the book of Genesis was what you just described. This was like a crude early science. Um, we can dismiss it now because we've moved on, but yeah. look what they used to think. And it's understandable based on the fact that they didn't have, you know, the tools that we have to measure things and stuff like that. But, you know, when you, when you read it, you know, you just rolled your eyes, or at least I did. <laughs> I, was just, I was like, yeah. you know, you, you your, your, your sophistication is uh, actually uh, so crude or uh, such, a, such a false sophistication that's almost laughable. Yeah. Right. It's, well, there, there, there are two comments there. First of all, it's a good illustration of how academics sometimes have an unfortunate tendency to assume that just because they're an expert in one area, they're an expert in all areas. Right. <laughs> but, right. Uh, but it's also a good example of how modern people – look at things only on the surface level, only on the literal level. Um, one of the most damning book reviews uh, I've ever heard 
said that uh, the fact that the Penguin Classics Odyssey had sold a million copies demonstrated that modern readers read for the plot. Huh. <laughs> okay. Huh. Yeah, it, yeah, it's just this this yeah. superficial right. And, right. Uh, yeah, surface understanding of things. Yeah, but Tom... And, 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 and a lot of uh, that complements, I think, a lot of the way even the notion of religion itself, the category of religion is understood is basically religion is nothing more than a primitive type of science, um, scientific explanation. And um, so it takes, you know, what classically was understood by a very rich understanding of, a, you know, a holistic participation in life in relationship to what is ultimate. But it also it, it, it rips it out of its similarity to like ancient art or ancient poetry, which is not trying to give the kind of explanation that an enlightenment view of science within its parameters is trying to give. And so to, to say that the only thing uh, truthful or even intelligible can be that which is defined by this very narrow method of, of interpretation pretty much brackets out any alternative as as basically just um value that we project onto things but not as as something connected to reality in any fuller sense and i think that's religion is another category like myth that gets thrown as a competitor to um narrow positivistic scientism Right. I think that that what we're getting at here ultimately, and this is where this whole conversation has to go sooner or later, um, is the difference between, um, I'm not sure what the first word would be, but maybe technical understanding versus meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because Tolkien, when Tolkien was talking about creating mythology for England, he wasn't talking about explanations of geographical phenomenon or much in the way of explanations of, of things in the physical world. You know, you don't get thunder. You don't get, you know, you don't get the coming of fire. You're the, the, the uh, taming of fire. You don't, you know, the, the closest you get is Venus. And I guess you get the sun and moon in there too. But, but there's, there's not a lot of that kind of explanation that, this sort of rational approach to mythology suggests. And yet Tolkien was very much self-consciously starting off as trying to provide a mythology. So <laughs> Tolkien is obviously thinking about myth in a very, very different way than this sort of rational approach suggests. Now, when, when we're moving on with developing theories of mythology, we get a bunch of different things. We get Freud, who sees this as an expression of the unconscious, uh, Freud student Carl Jung sees it in terms of archetypes and the uh, collective unconscious, this sort of uh, uh, mental thing that that hum all human beings share together. You know, so we, we've got a number of ideas like that coming psychologically. Out of Jung, you get probably the most important writer about mythology uh, uh, popular on a popular level, at least today, which is Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Um, and Campbell really focused on, on a few general ideas, broadly this concept of a monomyth, that yeah. all mythologies revolve around certain key, key things, notably the hero's journey, which has been beaten to death, frankly, in popular <laughs> discussions. Um, yeah. But he also 
he connects in with some of the the rational theory as well, where he says that these are stories that that are there to explain life, um, coming of age stories. Uh, what is marriage? Uh, what is death? Why is it that as hunter-gatherers, where these things begin, why is it that the animal has to give up its life so that we can maintain ours? And then eventually agriculture, and you get you know, your Persephone myths and things like that. And for Campbell, and I think he's right here, for Campbell, the significance of myth isn't so much the literal explanation of events as a an exploration of meaning, an exploration of life, an exploration of core issues um, that everybody has to deal with. Yeah, as, as I read Campbell, um, he strikes me as a guy who's got a, a foot in each world. Uh, on the one hand, he's, you yeah. know, comfortable with the kind of rationality that we call the enlightenment. And uh, on the other hand, he's tapping into things maybe because he's got this Jungian outlook, but also I think because he's, he's, he kind of understands surface and depth. Uh, he understands, you know, the inner meaning of things. He's got an intuition for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a sense, I think he's a kind of syncretistic thinker. Uh, and, and that's why it works. By the way, I've got a comment on this. I think that uh, the reason why Star Wars, the first trilogy especially the first two films, you know, the new, the new hope and, uh, you know, the empire strikes back. The reason why those worked and everything else has been downhill since is because Lucas stuck to the script of the hero's journey in those, in those films. And then with the, all the others, he seems to have bought into sort of the modern, uh, or sort of postmodern outlook of, uh, constructed reality that if you just make something look sexy enough and exciting enough, that you can just get anybody to accept anything at all as, as meaningful. And you can depart from the archetypes, you know, sort of the, the archetype. So there are certain things that have to work, uh, in the hero's journey. Um, and they actually do come down to certain basic things like is the protagonist male or female. So if a female protagonist would be like Cinderella, a male protagonist would be Luke Skywalker. And what you end up with by our time is this, kind of transgender approach to, to, uh, you know, telling stories where you insert the opposite sex into the role of the other. And it doesn't work. People just don't come to the films. Um, uh, they kind of turned off by them. Yeah, I think that that's correct. And Moira talks a lot about that. Uh, we, we had Moira Graylin Nelson, um, on before and, uh, uh, I think with Rachel Brown as well, but they were talking about exactly that kind of a problem. So the core here, it seems to me, and and the function of mythology, properly speaking, isn't so much explanation in the modern sense of the word. It's more understanding and meaning. It it explains the significance of things, and it provides you with patterns, um, you know, ideally with your hero stories, it provides you with patterns with um, with models, with images, with um, uh, things to emulate, but also warnings to uh, of things to avoid. So you can't look. There are very few Greek heroes who end up well. That's right. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> you know, and and when you read the stories, there are lessons that you can draw from them about what to do, what what is virtuous, what is a good, what is good, what you should strive for, but also the kinds of things you should avoid. Yeah, and I think too that it, they also give you a picture of the world. Um, so, like when we think about tragedy and comedy. Uh, in both cases, the protagonist doesn't come out very well in the end. You know, you've got either everybody dead on the stage, that's a tragedy, or everybody's a fool that the audience is laughing at, which is a comedy. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't want to be <laughs> either of those. Pe- <laughs> the, the, either, either of those. Uh, but what I, what I think, you know, when, when you have a tragic view of the world, uh, that means that uh, your intentions may not... Uh, be factored in. In other words, you can find yourself um, committing uh, crimes completely unaware, and 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 but the consequences, nevertheless, are not at all softened because of your ignorance. You you just suffer, um, and you you get that in a lot of fairy tales as well. There is like the 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 forbidden thing. And sometimes the character is malicious, does what shouldn't be done, and gets what he deserves or whatever. But other times you're just like, man, these poor these poor saps, they're just, you know, in this really bad spot and they're going to die. <laughs> Which is kind of like life sometimes. <laughs> Interestingly enough, um, I was speaking to an Old Testament scholar who is behind my right shoulder knitting at the moment. Um, yeah, we see her. Hello. <laughs> yes. Who who was saying that, you know, even in studies of the ancient Near East, there is an there's an open question on whether people actually believed the myths in the sense believed that they were telling things that were objectively true. Mm-hmm. Uh, or instead were they did they believe the myths only in the sense that the myths were symbolic of something not literal tellings of what happened, you know, not literal history, but symbolic. And, you know, there, there's a debate among middle, among um, ancient Near Eastern historians over this. Um, now, my suspicion is it's probably the wrong question. Yeah. Uh, but I am, I am also certain that the, even if they viewed them as, as literal, they also saw beyond them uh, to uh, symbols and meaning and things like that, that um, that we tend to overlook. Yeah, I, I think what you have there is, I mean, we've talked about this other times, is that you have a, a much thicker understanding of what literal means in, <laughs> in ancient understanding. And again, we have to get over our thin understanding to be able to, to somehow get a comprehensive notion. I mean, a good example would be St. Augustine's literal interpretation of Genesis, which takes all these volumes, but has nothing to do with what we would look at as literal. It wouldn't even, it would, the stuff we focus on would not even be interesting to much of history in terms of what is, what the, what is significant about the literal. And um, I, I remember reading Louis Dupree's uh, famous work on the passage to modernity. And whether you agree with all the steps in the passage, one of the things he does notice is what he talks about this phase at which we create, he calls it kind of the, um, something along the lines of the creation of objectivity. 
And the way in which the steps that have led to this notion of objective and historical or literal, um, and the way in which it, re it, it removes the it removes the relationship between the human and and everything else um, away from what was a, a much more um, tight knit, what we'll often call participatory relationship between the human and everything else. And when we realize this, the human was a participant um, within the reality. That's what gave the sense to literal, and that's what gave the sense to objective in in more ancient ways, um, that's when we start to get an antenna for the difference between our conception of literal versus the older ways of thinking about it. I'd like to use this as a segue to talk a little bit about somebody we've spoken of before. And this guy is a student of Carl Jung, and that's Jordan Peterson. Um, he has an enormous following, uh, uh, particularly among young men. So he's, he's reaching them. He's even willing to get, uh, you know, the, the Bible out and reflect on Old Testament, New Testament stories and explore them in ways that many preachers wouldn't. But uh, he's really reaching guys. It reminds me of Robert Bly. Do you remember Robert Bly uh, and his book, mm -hmm. Iron John? Iron John. Yeah, <laughs> that was a fascinating book. And it created a stir at, at the time. Of course, the thing that both Peterson and Bly did, which was the unforgivable sin, was try to understand men in a sympathetic way psychologically. That's something you're not supposed to do. <laughs> you get my point. But uh, what what I think, though, um, you also see here, though, is a, is a tendency that we have to separate making uh, from history. So let me, let me put it this way. Um, the word poet uh, in our day, uh, is, you know, just kind of, a, uh, you know, a word that's used for somebody who's out of touch with the real world. Uh, what is a, a poetry slam? It's some guy getting up and talking about his inner self, his inner life, you know, and his angst <laughs> and his anger or whatever, or her anger. And, uh, that's not what po poetry, uh, you know, that's not the function of poetry historically. It was, it's much closer to what we've been talking about with, with regard to mythology. Um, poesis means to make. Yeah. And once you see that the creation, the physical creation, is God's poetry that is intended to convey uh, and speak to us and uh, reflect his glory and, and speak to us, not just simply about his power and, and about uh, his intelligence, but to convey meaning to us in other ways that are deeply personal, then you get an understanding of, of I think, a, a better understanding even of mythology. And one of the things, you know, I, I mentioned this just briefly uh, a little while back. Um, if you have an artistic temperament, uh, being in an evangelical typical, well, I shouldn't say typical anymore. Maybe, maybe things are, are a little different, but, but I remember when I was younger, I was in a blue collar, uh, church made up of salt of the earth people in Western Pennsylvania. And I had an artistic temperament and I was, uh, kind of put off, uh, a lot. I, I loved the people and I kind of looked past, even as a, even as a teenager, I would look past some of their, 
Well, uh, Philistinist, uh, you know, their Philistine comments, you know, I would just sort of brush them off as, uh, well, they're great. They've got good hearts. They just don't understand anything about what they're talking about in this particular instance. (laughs) (laughs) But if you have any interest in the visual arts or even literary art um, and you are nourished by those things, you can find yourself kind of looked at as a freak in certain parts of the evangelical world. Yeah. <laughs> Quick note, when you mentioned, uh, Chris just mentioned this notion of, you know, sort of creation as being, you know, poesis, God's, um, you know, uh, poetry, if you will. And, and I think that's a, a very interesting way of putting it. It's coupled with that, not to lose the point, is something that, you know, a lot of theologians and in, in the ancients would talk about is something called pathos. And pathos it's where we get our word suffering, but but it also has to do with the an undergoing. And this is really one of the places at which I think the Christian understanding of creation, and this is something that will get us back, weave us back probably around to, to Tolkien's point and, and mythology, is that we aren't we as as creatures are not first uh, you know self-creators in this in the same way in which the creator you know it this is all poetry we have to suffer something first we aren't we can't purely socially construct we can't purely construct anything we have to undergo the poetry of god if you will before we can actually create poetry ourselves and so there is something from which we are stamped before we can add our stamp and and i think this already connects us to that world of of mythos because it is talking about the way in which god's poetry are undergoing it by participating in it, being shaped by it, and then that shaping all our expressions, our human artifacts, because of our relation to this huge communicative gift. Yeah, this this connects to another word, mimesis. So, you know, we find ourselves in this this great poem, you know, poesis, making. God made this meaningful place, and we just like a kid copying uh, what he sees, you know, uh, when he's trying to master draftsmanship, you know, drawing. Um, We do the same sort of thing. We kind of mimic, we repeat in various ways. And then we provide some maybe nuance or maybe bring things together. And Tolkien gets into this in his great essay on fairy stories. uh, What sub-creation is, is a bringing together of things that God has already made and creating new meaning out of meaning that it already exists. Anyway, fun, yeah. fun stuff now, to think about. Where, where I want to go with this then, if, if we're going to go to poetry, is Logos. Yeah. Hmm. And, he, and here's the thing. We, we note regularly that Logos is the root of our word logic. We think of it as the reason, the rationality within the universe and so on. But you still use Logoi plural of logos, you still use logoi to produce poems. Right. So it's more than just logic. It's more than just reason. It is meaning, meaning that goes deeper than just the superficial, which is really the essence of what poetry is, it seems to me. That, you know, I mean, I'm I'm not a poet and uh, I don't know that much about poetry, frankly, but it seems to me that like all art, what poetry does is it expresses ideas in as I, the way I would describe it as a non-discursive way. 
it it lays you know uh, uh, in a, in a discourse you lay things out in a very straightforward manner and everything is exactly as you say it. Art goes beyond that. It it tries to convey meaning in a way that is more elusive rather than um, you know right out there in your face. This is why it, um, it, it, the, this is why it frustrates uh, engineers and computer programmers. <laughs> right. So, so what what we see then is with poetry, with art, with the creation, what it points to is that there's meaning beyond the surface. And that is equally true of mythology. This is one of the things I think Campbell gets really right. He says that what you need to do if you're going to look at mythologies is, first of all, don't use your own. Don't use your own religious background. Read other mythologies, because in your own religious background, you're going to think of this thing in one specific way. But if you start looking at other mythologies, you begin to, hopefully at least, you'll begin to understand um, the uh, the the other symbolic meanings, the deeper meanings behind the stories, the lessons that are be, to be drawn from them, all of those kinds of things. Well, I, I think that just to kind of s- sort of put something in parentheses here for our listeners, we're not encouraging people to do a deep dive in uh, with the idea that they would might become devotees of, say, the Norse gods or Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, there's still an ability that we possess to kind of sympathetically enter in without uh, identifying with. I think that's an important kind of Mm -hmm. distinction to make because I don't know if people make that distinction uh, often enough. So like when I read Norse mythology or Greek mythology and I see meaning in it, maybe things that are going on in it that I can appreciate and even say that's a good that's a good thing that's being sort of extolled here. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm a devotee of that particular pantheon of gods or whatever. Right. And uh, again, Tolkien and Lewis are a good example of this. They both had a great appreciation for what they called northernness, hmm. uh, which involved Norse and Icelandic um, mythology and sagas and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, but they also said that while there are great virtues in northernness, there's also great evil in it. Right. And only when it's purified by the gospel can we actually, um, can, can these virtues actually come forth as they were meant to be. Hmm. You know, so, uh, you know, again, they're, they're, they're more, they were more deeply steeped in Norse mythology than probably any of the the pseudo vikings we have running around today <laughs> <laughs> right, um, right they 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 were very very deeply steeped in it and you know they recognized the problems they knew that there were problems there yeah. and but but they still saw value yeah well, they still saw that that the virtues that the norse mythology at the at, at its best the virtues that it promoted are genuine virtues and they're things that are sadly lacking in our culture today and kind of uh in terms of what they were up to there was a there was a kind of i would say a project of redeeming certain features in pagan 
mythology and thought. So, for example, uh, let's think of Mr. Tumnus. Now, Mr. Tumnus is an endearing character from, you know, mm-hmm. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He's a fawn, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> but uh, when we think about the meaning of a fawn in, you know, antiquity, uh, a little guy with an umbrella and a, and a package under his arm under a, a lamppost is not what comes to mind. <laughs> no. And, and in fact, thinking back to fawns in Greek mythology, the last thing I would want is for a little girl to go home with it. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. But, but think about what, what Lewis is able to do with that. So there's, there's still a kind of sense of latent danger in Mr. Tumnus. Remember when he brings her into her, his home, and he tries to enchant her, he, uh, <laughs> actually bewitch her, uh, with his with his uh, with his music, and in order to hand her over to the White Witch, and then he <laughs> repents. He he can't bring himself to do it. So there's a there's been kind of a civilizing uh, sort of uh, effect that has occurred with Mister Tumnus, and I think it's communicated brilliantly by these sort of bourgeois uh, markers, the umbrella. <laughs> And the package and the lamp post. He could be the scarf. Yeah, he could yeah. he could be an accountant <laughs> waiting for the bus. You know what I'm saying? But but uh, but he's also this dangerous character. And when what we see in that moment where he almost, you know, does this wicked deed of bewitching her and handing Lucy over to the White Witch, uh, what we see there is what. Uh, fawns really were. <laughs> that's the way they really. That's the way they really behaved, and and worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, th- this this brings us back then to Tolkien's moving. You know, Lewis. Lewis has got a really different way of incorporating myth and mythical themes into his work than Tolkien. Tolkien really didn't like the way Lewis did it. Um, <laughs> you know, wh- why are why are you pulling in an amalgamation of all of these different mythologies and Father Christmas and so on <laughs> into your world? It just doesn't make sense to Tolkien. <laughs> um, th- th- Tolkien wasn't, wasn't explicit about his use of mythology, although it's clearly there. I mean, the the more you know about myths and sagas and so on, the more you see it in Tolkien. But but like I said, it wasn't explicit. It it was there, but not quite in your face. But what he's trying to do, I think, is to create a Christian mythology set in a legendary past that is, you know, way, way before any recorded history. Um, that provides the kinds of things that mythology, and especially tragedy, since we brought those categories in a tragedy and comedy, um, that, you know, that that provides you with all of the things that those should have been, should have done, or could have done in in a system, in a mythological system, but does it in a way that is profoundly Christian, yeah. um, and that can provide you with a, you know, the kinds of understandings or ways of thinking about the world and thinking about your life that myth provided for people in the past. 
So he's creating mythology in that sense, not in the sense that this is a, a uh, you know, supposed to be a narration of actual events, but yeah. something that provides you with patterns, that provides you with models, that provides you with a way of thinking about the world that helps you navigate this one. Yeah, I uh, I saw something. I, I watched a, a a documentary by documentary by Werner Herzog uh, last night. I've seen it before. It's called uh, mm -hmm. "Little Dieter Needs to Fly." It's mm -hmm. a it's a powerful documentary, kind of life changing one about a guy named Dieter Dengel, who was a mm -hmm. German. Um, he immigrated to the, Ameri to, to the United States and became a Navy pilot and was shot down in the Vietnam War and was taken captive by the Viet Cong. But he escapes. He's the only person to ever escape the Viet Cong. A, a uh, uh, you know, he was a prisoner in a camp. Um, they had to fight their way out after six months of nearly starving to death and uh, under horrific conditions and torture. But anyway, as he as he is describing his his escape, as he's fleeing from the Viet Cong, he sees things, and he's not sure whether they're real or just hallucinations. And at one point, his father had actually been uh, a German soldier in World War II and was killed. He had never met his father. Hmm. Uh, but as he was fleeing the Viet Cong, he saw his father standing in the river. And his hmm. father was pointing, go that way. Hmm. And he knew it was his father. He recognized him as his father. And he, he, he fled. Now, the question, of course, he, and he got away. Uh, if he if he apparently and at least according to his own uh, understanding of it or his uh, his reflections on it he would have been dead if he hadn't mm. followed his father's instruction uh, mm. now the question of course we we wonder is is this uh, an hallucination <laughs> is it just a good guess was there some kind of divine intervention was it really his father i mean there are all these questions that arise in our minds but if you have a uh, an understanding of the world that's suffused with real presences, not just in human beings, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. in the Eucharist, in mm -hmm. the heavens, uh, in yeah. angelic. You know, you are much more open to to the yeah. to the prospect that even if that wasn't physically, you know, the case that there was his father standing there, it was his father. You know, you're open to that. If you, if you get my drift. And I think it ties into this, this way of thinking about mythology and stuff. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, uh, along with that, I think you may, uh, you know, that's, that's rich, uh, what you just said, Chris, because I do, I do think that that is one of the places at which what Tolkien is up to, what Lewis is up to in their differing ways why they're so important for now in terms of our Christian witness and apologetic, it's, it's because that, that what they had an antenna for as they saw, I think, eroding um, a lot of the things about the Christian understanding of things um, because of the Enlightenment's acids, if you will, um, basically eradicating it is that if they didn't recapture some of those things and then imaginatively spell them out, um, we wouldn't have a lot of resources right now yeah. to deal with with getting some kind of depth about what the you know creation, metaphysics of creation and and its implications look like 
um, we would only have it sort of doctrinally, which people find very hard to, to follow just yeah. in terms of its abstraction. And I think this provides us uh, almost a way to step into, participate in, in this the kind of richer world that we are in. Um, but this is kind of a, a kind of window reflection of. Yeah. Yeah. Just a quick aside that I, I think is particularly interesting. When you look at world mythology um, and you compare it to the Bible, there's one really, really important difference. Well, there are a bunch of them, but, but uh, um, you know, one of, one of the things that strikes me as a historian is while the early chapters of Genesis may be very difficult to date, once you get to at least Abraham, you are dealing with real time, real places, real history. Whereas in every other religious system, the mythology takes place in what I call God time. Right. It's right. time that is totally separate from yeah. human time. Right. You, yeah. you can't date it. Right. Yeah. right. And in a very real way, Middle Earth sort of falls into that kind of a category. It's a time before history, as we know it, began. Um, I wouldn't call it God time, but I would call it the, yeah. the, the time of legends or something along those lines. You know, uh, you know, because we're not really dealing, I mean, the Silmarillion, you might argue, is sort of a God time thing. Um, but but, but you're, 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 go ahead, Glenn, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, well, yeah, finish up. Yeah, well, go ahead. Well, you know, you're dipping into something that, that some people have wondered about, and that is, when we think about the Enlightenment, is it Christianity run amok? In other words, what you have uh, is, you know, a, a, an emphasis on history, on the material world, to the exclusion of God time. Whereas within the Christian faith, there was uh, an ability to say, well, you know, God uh, from all eternity, you know, is, uh, you know, at work, uh, all times being present in him and so forth. And yet history is is uh, real. It's not just a cyclical, same old thing over and over again. Or, in other words, there, you know, one one thing. There's a con there's a contingency. You know, you, you know, yes, yeah. there's a beginning and there's an end, but there's contingency in, be in between, and that contingency is real. And our, therefore, our actions have real consequences. Yeah. So, all of this to say that um, what you just brought out, Glenn, is absolutely right. But there's a sense in which it's just kind of gone to a point where it's lost its spiritual moorings. Uh, right. I, I think the Enlightenment is, if you'll pardon the expression, the bastard son of Christianity. Yeah, it's a heresy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think it, it, does, it does bring in it, part of its problem as being the bastard is it brings into it, you know, a lot of little bastards with it, if you will. <laughs> um, and, and one is this notion of time. I, I know that a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, take a figure like Karl Barth, who was trying to deal with this notion as well. And I know a lot of people saw his interpretation of Genesis as problematic because he used the language of saga. Um, but the reason he picked that language is because he was want, wanting to say that, but, you know, when you're dealing with the earliest part of Genesis, which is kind of prehistory prior to the fall, right? After the fall, history for human beings as experienced is very different than what it would have been experienced in, in this, you know, if you will, kind of God, 
creations, creation in, in, you know, in non-fallen relation to God time, maybe that's a good way of putting it. Um, and so that, that space does not have the same, uh, you know, kind of natural contours that after the fall, um, will have, I mean, once sin, death, you know, hell, you know, once sin and death enter the picture, for example, in, in the telling of the story, you already have something brought into time to measure it differently. I mean, this is what they were trying to wrestle with. And, and so I think enlightenment didn't give us many tools to deal with these kind of theological nuances. That's why I always said we need to be careful as Christians when we read um, the, 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 you know, Genesis in particular is, yes, we're talking reality in its fullest sense, but I think sometimes our categories are not, are not, um, full and robust enough to deal with the theological nuances that are going, we aim to do well at it. Um, and so, but what happens if we, if we try to use something, if we try to use language, um, to suggest that, for example, it isn't literal in the scientism sense of literal, um, then all of a sudden somebody says, oh, well, you don't think it's real and true and you're trying to describe, you know, reality as it is. And that's not what's being said here. I'm not reducing those texts to um, non-reality or untruths, what I'm trying to, or just spiritual truths. But what we're trying to do is nuance these different dimensions um, that are all part of the creation and time, but because it's chopped up between fall and pre-fall and the like, it's a little hard with enlightenment concepts. Yeah, and I would add that if we had a simple narrative history there, it would lack meaning. Right. In the sense it wouldn't tell us anything deeper about reality and about ourselves if it was a simple narration of events. Yeah, I think. Um, which is not to say that it's not historical in that sense of the word. I'm not even going to get into that, yeah. but it's got to be. It, it, it's got to be more than historical. It's got. It, it may very well be. You know, even it, let, let's deal with something that's less potentially uh, uh, a, 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 an area of conflict. Let's talk about David's story. If, if David's story, you have a narration of events there, certainly. But there's, but the significance of the story goes way deeper than the simple narration. Okay, and that that's what I mean. If all you have is a narration of events, it doesn't really give you the depth of meaning that you have with the kind of text we've got now, or for that matter, more broadly with mythology. Yeah, I think when we when we talk about history in the way you just described as a series of, of uh, events. Uh, it, it, it's similar to the way people talk about, say, data uh, mm-hmm. with regard to uh, scientific study. So data points, facts, uh, are isolated, uh, meaningless uh, things that need to be sort of brought together into some kind of whole uh, vision, which is what a theory is. So in other words, you providing the framework for understanding these meaningless events. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think sometimes people think that, you know, the higher thing is the fact and the lower thing is the theory. Sometimes you'll hear people arguing, well, I don't believe in theories. I believe in facts. Well, you clearly don't understand what a fact 
is <laughs> what you're trying. <laughs> yeah, that's what you're what you're what you're trying to say is I believe in truths. <laughs> truth, yeah. truth, and fact are not uh, perfectly synonymous. <laughs> right. Well, you know, Mark Twain uh, once said, "History is just one damn thing after <laughs> another." Right. <laughs> you know, as a historian, that was something I was always fighting. <laughs> now, what what what's worth noting here? is that even the, the secular scientist, even the person who's into scientism, has a mythology. Because they've got their story, which is what the word myth, uh, mythos in Greek, refers to a story, an account, or fable. Mm -hmm. um, the, the scientists, scientismists, whatever, <laughs> um, they have their own just-so story. They've got their own fable. They've got their own myth about origins and everything else. And embedded in that myth is their beliefs about the nature of humanity, about the meaning of life and death. There isn't any. Uh, of um, of uh, morality. Everything else is part of their 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 creation myth. Yeah, and, and and they don't they they don't seem to recognize that that's where this goes. I mean, you know, they 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 it functions. Their account of the origin of the universe functions the way myth does. The um, well, this is something I want <laughs> I want to capture on the next the next show, so everyone will have to wait. <laughs> um, but one one of the points here, it, it's something I kind of unpack a little bit. We'll unpack a little bit there is, but the the notion, the shift in in this notion of science to scientism, and to where science starting to function as worldview, if you will, or 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 a myth, or, um, is I mean that is one of the problem areas already for for a lot of people is that science moves from a descriptive um, to to actually providing a comprehensive um, almost you know a religious alternative mimicking you know kind of religion as holistic or worldview as a more fashion you know more more common term today yeah or prescriptive yeah so one way yeah. to kind of think of it as pre prescriptive is is uh, you know you go from descriptive to prescriptive and you've not like told anybody what you're up to which is yes. what the science means <laughs> right yeah well and actually did, I, I would argue that science claims to be answering the question why but the only question that they really answer is how that's right yeah that's right yeah so the why questions which are really the questions we really need to answer if we're going to live you know, if we're going to be moral agents, <laughs> you know, uh, how questions are not enough. That's mm -hmm. right. And that's why, re you know, that's why they can, they'll never get rid of religion. That's why they, they opt for religious substitutes, because those are after the, you know, finding meaning in events, um, not, not in theories to explain these events. I mean, that's, that's exactly wh why you'll never get rid of, you know, that I remember this notion that soon will outgrow religion and the need <laughs> for it. Well, yeah. that, that is basically saying we will find all meaning. We will have the capacity to find all sufficient meaning within, um, within a very reductionistic interpretation of life. And as uh, I remember William Buckley years ago, you, you uh, said in one of his interviews that this, uh, he said, well, you can't live by bread alone. And I think that was a, a perfect yeah, point. Right, you know, right. um, it, it reduces it all to just bread. Right. And not very tasty bread either. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, now um, 
Just to round things out a little bit, there have been several other theories about mythology that I think are are worth at least mentioning here. They don't tie in as directly to Tolkien in in some ways, but there are a a couple of other ones that are at least worth noting. Uh, One of the ones that I would throw out pretty much a priori is called the ritual theory, which which says that mythology is created to explain rituals. (laughs) <laughs> which seems to me to be getting the cart before the horse. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know too many people who actually hold to that, although I think it's important to recognize that ritual and myth are connected. Yeah. And one of yeah. the ways you see this is how many rituals that we get um, that serve to reenact the legends or the myths of the gods. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we see this in the Mithra cult, for example, where yeah. there's a sacrifice of a bull. Um, apparently, you know, the, the Mithra myth, uh, the central feature of it is Mithra killing this monstrous bull. Well, at one point, um, as you're moving through the mysteries in the Mithra cult, uh, they will actually, you'll be underneath a bull and they will sacrifice it and you will be drenched in the bull's blood. It's a kind of baptism. Um, this is going to be, for someone who is into the Mithra cult, this is going to be a powerful, uh, symbolic connection, identification with the god. Yeah. And this points out the, you know, or, or the use of masks. We can point to the use of masks in the right. same way where the mask represents things. You become or you embody the deities in ritual. Right. Yeah. And uh, this points out the fact that, uh, as it says in... Um, uh, Isaiah, I believe it is, uh, about idols, those who worship them will become like them. Right, yeah. right. You know, the goal of religion is to become like what you worship. Yeah, yeah. Which I think, you know, gets to, to uh, I think, a problem that we're seeing in the world today, and that is um, for a lot of people, um, helpful, uh, I guess, stories to help them know how to live their lives are uh, lacking. Everything's been debunked, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we lived through a period of time where John Wayne was the personification of the ideal cowboy, and then Clint Eastwood became the personification of the ideal mm-hmm. cowboy, and now we don't even want Clint. You know, yeah. it's you know the hero, anti-hero, no hero yeah. situation. So there are a lot of young people, I think, who are floundering uh, as a result. Yeah. yeah, and you know, you actually see this going back to the '60s. Um, Simon and Garfunkel, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Our right. nation turns yeah. its lonely eyes to you. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a funny. No that's, heroes. There's a that's a funny thing to bring, to bring you bring up because Joe DiMaggio was a literalist, and he was going <laughs> to sue Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> he said, "I'm right here." <laughs> he missed well, the point. Missed the point. Well, but but similar to I think American Pie. I mean, the whole uh, bye bye Miss American Pie. The the notion of this world is starting to go away. um, You know, at least in 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 this country, that that the um, the figures that brought a sense of cohesive meaning and unity to to you know a people. To you, which was which was the name of it wasn't a Durkheim's view, a functionalist view of religion was basically that set of, set of symbols to which a people become conscious of themselves, right? Their identity develops. That that going away um, definitely ha- has uh, been been what, what it's done and wide up. Yeah, what it's done is it's thrown us back upon ourselves. 
which in, which causes us to do this sort of inner search saying, well, what is this sort of like impulse that I'm feeling right now? And then define yourself around that. It's an inner search with no boundaries and no guidelines. I can think of of nothing that is more terrifying than that. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. it is. You're left completely hanging in the middle of the void to try to define yourself. Right. It it is a worse... I mean, the, 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 I know that, you know, a lot of the, the modern theologians that were trying to deal with kind of what, what shape do old doctrines take now? Take Paul Tillich or someone like that. But one of the things they were after was this notion that we have a heightened sense of anxiety. I mean, you remember all their language, the yeah. angst, yeah. the anxiety. Um, it is compared to what they were dealing with, and they were dealing with a lot, they were dealing with World War II, the breaking down of kind of, of Christendom, if you will. And um, But really what we have now, when it's been thrown completely back on us, and you see the level of anxiety in the young and in children um, who have no parameters, it, it is frightening. It is scary to know what what has been created by this mess. Yeah, I think that's partly what's behind uh, this need to affirm everything and provide safe spaces and so forth. You know, it's one of the things about watching that film I talked about, you know, Werner Herzog's um, Little Dieter Needs to Fly. That guy went through so much. It's unbelievable what he experienced in the course of his life. Um, and at, at one point early in the film, he's talking about his life immediately following World War II and the poverty in Germany. They were eating the paste off of wallpaper to stay alive. It was that bad. And he was an apprentice to a blacksmith who would beat him, you know, physically beat him. And he said, at the time, you know, it was not good to go through. But when I was in the Viet Cong camp, I understood that had prepared me for this. Another, wow. <laughs> so yeah. this is a guy who was able to look back with with gratitude upon his tormentor in Suffering. Germany. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> because uh, the guy put him through so much, it made him yeah. capable of enduring the kind of... And when you when, if you ever get a chance to watch it, please, you know, I think you'll be uh, equally impressed. The guy, they were eating rats, snakes. Yeah. It was just unbelievable the stuff they were going through. Uh, he saw his best friend, his, he saw his head cut off with a machete. It was just that kind of horror. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, there were a couple of other mythological theories I was going to get to, but it looks like we're... <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Please, 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 save us, please, please save us from the decapitation I just brought. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, yeah. I, 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 we're we're going to have to bring this plane in for a landing, I'm afraid. I, I um, yeah, I'm, I'm stealing your lines, Chris. Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, there, you know, there, there, just just real quickly, one of the, the, the common theories is called the structural theory. Uh, not so much... Uh, uh, adopted anymore but this uh, this is one that i really should like but don't uh it comes out of linguistic theory um the idea that the meaning of myths is found not in their components but in the relationships between the components Hmm. um and so it's analysis on that basis which i'm not going to go any further into the one that is probably the the dominant well maybe dominant is not the right word exactly right now, but the one that I think fits the zeitgeist the best is called the ideology theory. And that's that all mythologies are 
is a framework to uh, uphold or support the dominant ideology of the period. And definitely what we see today is in the mythologies that we have in our culture, the dominant mythology in the culture is there really to support the ideology. Yeah. Um, and that's the real value of uh, circling around here. I think that's the real value of Tolkien and Lewis um, and Lewis's comments about reading old books and why that's important. Um, these serve as alternatives uh, to counteract the ideological uh, dominance and the blind spots of our own time and place. And the real value in them as mythology is to provide I would argue, a safer, a more well-rounded, realistic um, mm -hmm. account of the world, granted in mythological or symbolic terms, than what our current ideology is offering us. Well, that's a good place to to actually land the plane. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks, Glenn. That was a, that was a rich subject, and uh, I think we'll, as we've said before, get back to it in the future. Anyway, we thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast today. You know, uh, just so you know, uh, we really do appreciate all of the gifts that people send our way. We get emails from around the world. We also have monetary support that comes to us in different ways. There are people who support us through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and we're very grateful for that. There are also people who support us through our Patreon account. And if you'd like to become a patron, that would be appreciated. There are expenses to producing the show. Uh, the three of us don't actually do any of the technical work. We pay other people to do that. <laughs> so those, the, and so, there's a good reason for that. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. That's right. So uh, the the fact that uh, you know of the matter is you know, we don't take any of those funds uh, for ourselves. Uh, they all go uh, through, you know, uh, the the pro, you know, sort of from you directly to the people who do the work uh, to make the show possible and post it and all that kind of stuff. So thank you for your support in those ways. And uh, we're looking forward to being with you in the days ahead. We've got uh, other guests who are coming on the show. Jack Bumgartner in a couple of weeks, who is, is going to be a really fun interview for me anyway. Uh, but I guess that's enough for now. We don't want to just keep going on and on about this. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.